The views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. We choose to go to the moon in this bikini and do the other thing. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Sunday Space Show program. And I'm your host, David Livingston. Thank you very much for tuning in. And uh, we have a commercial space habitation type program for you today uh, with two guests. I will introduce them in just a minute. First, a couple of very quick announcements. We're on a variable time period program today, uh, but do pay attention to the clock. We definitely want to hear from you, preferably by telephone. And uh, we want to hear from you while we're still doing the broadcast. Our toll-free number is 1-866-687-7223. And you can email us, as always, at drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. Just a few additional comments, uh, other than the fact that we're variable time rate. Uh, we have a guest, uh, Dr. Kathari is back with us on Tuesday, and he wants to talk about his Cosmos Society presentation that he recently made on uh, Thorium, which, of course, he is on a big kick for. He's also doing the Hotel Marshall on CBS with us on Wednesday to the CBS Global audience, which is pretty different than the Space Show audience. Uh, Ian Crawford, Dr. Ian Crawford in the U.K., is back with us. And uh, he has posted one of his articles that I'll put up on the blog about uh, the significance of not finding any ET civilizations. I thought it was interesting enough to bring Ian back on the show to talk about it. And then uh, Charlie Schaefer of Celestus is back with us on Sunday. And everybody's favorite, Zimmerman, is back on next Tuesday. Uh, Bob Zubrin has a new book out. And he is back on the show regarding his new book, Tuesday, March 5th, an award-winning space architect. I love it how they're award-winning since there is no space architecture in space yet. But anyway, uh, I guess they win designs here on Earth. Uh, Melody Yashar is back with us. And uh, she's one of my favorites, and she speaks at ISDC all the time. Uh, so she is back with us. And uh, that will be on um, March 8th, uh, a week from uh, last Friday. Uh, for today, uh, well, for a couple of other things. Don't forget, we are listener-supported nonprofit radio. And uh, listener-supported means those of you who listen help us by contributing and donating. And as a nonprofit, if you're a U.S. federal taxpayer, you do get a tax donation for your gift. The easiest way to donate to us is there's a PayPal button in the upper right corner of our homepage, and uh, that really works well. It goes right 
directly to our one giant leap, that's our parent, uh, a Chase Bank account. If you want to send us a check, this is really important, we would love to take your check. It needs to be made out to our parent, One Giant Leap Foundation. Do not make it out to the space show because Chase Bank is not accepting them under what they claim are new bank audit rules for nonprofits. I'm not in a position to question Chase Bank, so I'm just playing the game. So I'm passing this little bit of news on to you. Checks should be made payable to One Giant Leap Foundation. If you use Zelle with a U.S. bank, the email address that goes to the Chase account is david at one giant leap foundation dot org. And uh, we appreciate your support. We certainly need your support. We also have the sponsorships, and they, uh, as you know, have the banner ads across the homepage on longer format shows. We shout out with uh, PR messages from the sponsors. And we want to thank Northrop Grumman, AIAA, Helix Space, and Luxembourg National Space Society, Celestis, the Astrox Corporation, Dr. Ben Arroyo with his great books on lunar development, the Space Foundation, and uh, Fremont John's uh, blog uh, that all of us benefit from because he posts everything also on the Space Show site, Space Settlement Progress. And that brings us to our guest today. So we have with us Dr. Bettina Beer, who got her Ph.D. in experimental and cognitive psychology, uh, and she started her career in academia. Uh, but then she uh, has been involved in human space landing systems, human space flight, ISS issues. Uh, she's the author of numerous scientific conference proceedings, she just recently attended a space human habitation uh, workshop that was put on, I believe, by IAASS in uh, working for human research program for civilians in space flight and space radiation. Uh, you can read about her background on our webpage. Uh, we are also uh, happy to have Dr. Michael March on. So he is vice chair of that workshop. And uh, he, too, is going to be addressing uh, human research programs for civilians in commercial space. He has lots and lots of information and credits on the website about his background, both with commercial space, with NASA, awards and distinctions, and much more. I'd spend the whole afternoon reading about him, but I think you should read it so that you have a little bit of an idea of knowing who we're talking to today. So it's a great pleasure to uh, bring Dr. Beard and Dr. March to the space show. How are you both today? Fine, thank, thank you very much. Um, Bettina, um, you attended the, the workshop in Oklahoma, so uh, in Tulsa, my hometown, of course. Um, so why don't you lead off, and what are we talking about with a program for civilians in space flight, space radiation, habitats for human research. What does all this translate to for people interested in human space flight? So we're, um, the United States is undergoing a, a very exciting time now in human space flight where there is a dramatic rise in commercial space flights that 
ferry government and non-government passengers into low Earth orbit to the ISS. And um, this push actually started in um, uh, 2006 um, with uh, when the NASA administrator Mike Griffin was um, had the reins, and um, he uh, uh, started a, a project called the um, Crew Exploration Vehicle Smart Buyer Project to um, ask the NASA workforce to um, yield an innovative in-house design of the crew exploration vehicle um, to sharpen the skills that we need to be more effective buyers of spacecraft. So even in 2006, we were thinking of commercial spaceflight. Um, today, we're active stewards of the um, uh, development um, of private companies building spacecraft for the Artemis program, uh, the NASA Artemis program, uh, where we're going back to the moon and ultimately to Mars. And because of this rise in commercial space flight, which will be including people with um, just normal people like you and me who may or may not have um, disabilities or chronic illnesses, we need to better understand what the implications are of spaceflight on those people. Um, spaceflight, as you know, is, is very dangerous, and um, it, it can uh, lead to uh, uh, reduction in um, uh, cell counts in your blood, um, uh, reductions in your, the rigidity of your bones, um, it can affect your vision uh, permanently. It, it, uh, it can uh, um, also uh, your muscles atrophy if you don't exercise for at least two hours a day when you're in microgravity. So we don't know how these stressors are going to affect people with pre-existing conditions. And so Michael uh, Marge, uh, uh, several years ago, um, I think it was like four years ago, um, brought together a bunch of people who, uh, a bunch of uh, experts in spaceflight who came up with an initial draft of a human research program for commercial, for the commercialization of space. Um, and re more recently, he brought me on to chair this effort um, to, and we, we had 32 experts. Um, from around the world. We've now got it uh, as an international effort um, because of my involvement with the, the International Association for the Advancement of Space Safety. That was the IAAF that you referred to before. Um, I'm the technical chair of the uh, Human Performance and Health Committee for the IAAF. And, um, and together, um, Michael and I have um, uh, uh, had, have led the, the group of, of experts from around the world to develop uh, a more enhanced human research program that, uh, and that leads me to the, um, the workshop. And this is where uh, the planning committee introduced the current human research program for civilians in space and space habitation um, to 
the general public. And at this workshop, we had, uh, well, NASA was present, ESA was present, uh, you know, all the, the, the main space uh, um, agencies were there, but also um, commercial companies, the, the spaceflight companies also attended to see what this program was about. And I think that I'll hand it over to Mike to talk about the program itself. Uh, hi, Mike. Welcome to the show. How are you today? Fine, thank you. Um, I'll give you a little bit of a history. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of new to the field of space research. Uh, my background has been uh, really a researcher who is concerned with the health of uh, vulnerable populations. And I was working in 2020 in the Department of Health and Human Services and was approached by Craig Kondrat uh, of NASA, who was, at that time was uh, director of the Human Research Program at NASA. And he said, we want to really speed up our research in terms of countermeasures for the space hazards that our astronauts will face on their journey to Mars. And we're looking to have... NIH help us, the researchers at NIH work with our researchers to advance their knowledge about the impact or the effects of space on humans. So I went, you know, to the director of NIH uh, and uh, asked for his permission to consult with each of the 27 institutes at NIH to see if they would work in collaboration with NASA. And out of the 27, 22 22 institutes agreed to uh, uh, engage in collaborative research with NASA, and we set up a, an NIH-NASA space, space interest group, which is still operating, by the way, and uh, certain kinds of research began to evolve. Uh, one of them was the tissue research, where we send tissue chips up to the ISS to determine what impact or what effects space uh, you know, microgravity and radiation has, for example, on cancer cells and see whether or not uh, there are new discoveries that could lead us to other kinds of research that will not only improve the health of deep space travelers but also terrestrials. And then uh, at that point I was asked uh, to visit with the National Space Council in, in the summer of 220 when they raised the issue of uh, now expanding the population of spacefarers to include average civilians, that uh, as they develop orbital platforms, they need carpenters and engineers and uh, physicians and uh, tourist guides and policemen to go into space. And I asked at that time, are you serious? Do you realize what you're talking about? It's one thing to send a population of very healthy, well, carefully selected, physically monitored, um, uh, outstandingly uh, physically performing um, astronauts versus a person with uh, diabetes or with uh, or even controlled diabetes or with Parkinson's disease or with some other spinal cord injuries, you want folks to go into space with all these types of underlying health problems. They said, yes. So that led me to um, submit a proposal to the National Space Council. 
which was tacitly approved and referred over to the Commercial Space Flight Federation. And at that time, Tommy Sanford and I, the executive director, worked together with all the space companies plus the FAA and the NASA and uh, academia and other researchers to establish the to establish a research program that would meet the immediate needs of the space industry. For example, they wanted um, an answer to how do we best control or best countermeasure uh, space flight, uh, uh, space, uh, space flight uh, 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 problems, or rather problems with space flight that deal with uh, a person's uh, um, uh, ability to, uh, to maintain a balance in, sp in space, and um, and so the uh, 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 so we proceeded to come up with a really a good list. We had about uh, let's see, we had about twenty twenty six different projects that we've identified that if they were actually implemented, they would lead to. Uh, eventually countermeasures for some of the spaceflight hazards that would be faced by, you know, the average person in the population. And, uh, and then as, uh, as I think after we completed that, uh, that project and after a workshop in 2021, uh, I proceeded to uh, take the concept and the plan, the, the human research program, uh, to Congress and to the White House. And uh, I was told that it should be much more, it should be international, much more comprehensive to address all issues, not just those identified by the space industry. Uh, uh, and so, um, and so uh, we, we got together again, and that, and Tina just brought up the issue that we brought together another group, but we expanded to include international um, uh, stakeholders, and we now came up with what we now what we consider to be the first ever comprehensive um, program of human research that will eventually lead to adequate countermeasures, reduction of risk for average civilians who will. Uh, eventually engage in, in uh, space employment, space uh, uh, habitation, and uh, space tourism. Uh, I have an email question, if I can jump in and, and read you the first question of the day. It's, it's from a listener who likes to be first for some reason. Uh, this is Todd in San Diego. And he says, uh, on the space show, there are lots of companies that are on the program talking about their plans for developing resources or orbital development or structures in space. They all claim it will be done by robotics, and they're not even thinking of sending humans up there. Why are you focusing on humans? Do you think they will be up there, or will all of this mostly be done by robots? Tina, do you want to answer that, or shall I answer it? Um, well, m maybe I'll put in my two cents and then you can take over. Um, Go ahead. Uh, so <laughs> robots are programmed by humans, and they, they will not work on their own. And so even if you do have robots uh, building 
constructing your habitation, your habitat, excuse me, um, you will still need to have people there. And, um, and you, uh, otherwise the, the, it, it takes too long to build the, the different habitats. And, and also we want to explore. Humans want to explore. So, so we need to have humans involved. People want to go up and, and experience the overview effect, which is, is a feeling of awe and, and, and a feeling of, of, of being one with the universe. Um, you know, spaceflight is phenomenal, uh, even though it's, it's very bad for your body and your brain. <laughs> um, so, uh, Michael, you can take it from there. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I, I worked with NASA as a consultant, uh, to the, uh, to, uh, Craig Condrat for four years. And during that period, that issue came up a number of times and I, I raised it. I said, you know, you're speaking about after Mars, you're going to explore Europa. And that's four years in flight. And uh, why don't we send robots? Uh, and they said, um, just like Tina, to reinforce what Tina said, the, the humans, apparently the humans are needed uh, to, to do the exploration that robots cannot do at the present time. They're not able to. Um, and, uh, and the other thing is that uh, our research program is looking at near-Earth space uh, orbital platforms, 320 miles above uh, what have you. And um, uh, the uh, National Space Council in September 2022 announced that uh, we're going to have a new program for preparing uh, for the future space workforce. They see that commercial space which is uh, space between uh, probably uh, lunar space, uh, not not lunar space, excuse me, space between the Earth and and, and the Moon, will be occupied by orbital platforms, which will actually be commercial, commercially operated for profit, and they'll be looking for employees. And so the White House said they want this initiative, and they have a, a director who is in charge of developing the, the workforce, working with the Department of Labor, Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Commerce, and a number of other departments to train individuals, average individuals, who seek employment uh, both uh, in, in the space industry on Earth as well as on these orbital platforms. So we're talking really not about deep space for human travel. So robots would would probably be um, uh, n- not as useful as sending someone up there who's been trained at MIT as an engineering or in some other area and uh, could do the job uh, much more effectively uh, and with less expense. Um, I have another uh, email. You, you've uh, woken up the audience. Uh, this is Cheryl in Seattle, and she says, I understand you're focusing on the workforce, again, on the space show, we talk a lot about living in space and space settlement. Are you, uh, are any of your pro- procedures or countermeasures directed at people who may not be part of a workforce but just want to live or be a space settlement person or just a space tourist? Tina? 
The answer is yes. Um, any human that goes into space is is relevant here. Um, and 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 as as you as we have said, those humans may or may not have a pre-existing condition. And because astronauts, although they're 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 on the older side when they actually fly, are are don't have dramatic things wrong with them medically. And and so we need to understand the purpose of this of this research program is to better understand what happens to people when they have asthma or um, or uh, retinitis pigmentosa or you know any other kind of of preexisting condition. Um, and so the idea is to better understand that so that we can develop countermeasures and people can come back to Earth healthy. Um, I have a caller on hold for you, but an emailer has been uh, uh, waiting for quite a while. So John from uh, Fremont, California, sent in a note, and he says, do any of your countermeasures include artificial gravity and at what levels? I'm I'm looking at uh, currently, my my recent focus has been on uh, how – Realistic is it to send individuals who already have uh, chronic bone loss, people with osteoporosis, uh, and you're including the population of people with pageant's disease or into the spinal cord injuries, spina bifida, cerebral palsy, um, multiple sclerosis. They all are experiencing and battling bone loss here on Earth. We know that microgravity has an impact on bone loss and muscle loss of average of, of uh, healthy humans in space. The astronauts are always exposed to it, and NASA is really trying very hard to combat that with medication and exercise. But uh, if you have a person with spinal cord injury, um, the exercise that's proposed for an astronaut may not apply to a person with spinal cord injury. So I'm trying to determine what types of interventions we could apply so that an individual with these various kinds of disorders can go into space, live there for weeks or months, and not have uh, a more uh, exacerbated bone loss and muscle loss because they're already combating it here on Earth somewhat unsuccessfully. So is artificial gravity one of the countermeasures you're looking at? Yes, if we can, uh, if, if we can, if we can develop um, a way in which we can actually apply that, we have not been successful at the current time, from what I understand. Let's take your phone call. Um, good afternoon, caller. Welcome to the show. Who are you? And where are you, please? This is Doug from Redwood, California. Hi, Doug. Hi. Yeah, I, I think it's important to uh, have uh, the understanding that space is going to be developed in phases, and I would anticipate that the initial crew uh, going beyond, uh, you know, beyond Earth orbit um, is initially going to be government um, <clears throat> uh, employees from, from around the world. They'll, they'll be astronauts. They'll be uh, highly fit individuals. They'll be selected in the same way that, astronauts have been today. As it begins to, uh, as the um, 
the flight rate goes up and the per seat price goes down, and it comes within range uh, of the tickets being not just for countries but for wealthy individuals, I still think that there will be a phase in which the people who, who go, uh, who are private individuals, uh, there will still be a selection process. People with spina bifida and, you know, uh, paralysis and these sorts of things or, you know, uncontrolled diabetes or some of these, you know, pretty pretty significant things, that they that there would be a screening process and they, they would not be among the first to go. But during the phase in which, you know, very fit people are going, um, <clears throat> healthcare providers would be pushed to the front of the line in anticipation that later on there will be uh, older individuals that, that bring, you know, certain diseases with them, and there will need to be, uh, you know, uh, providers who, who can care for them. Um, so I think, it, again, it's worthwhile to, to bear in mind that it's going to be a stepwise process, and we don't have to uh, really treat uh, people with significant diseases in the initial phases of space development and even settlement. I, I agree with that. I should point out that when the uh, the uh, uh, Space Medicine uh, Association came out with a list of, of uh, cautions about who to send into space, they were hit with so many complaints because uh, they felt, some groups felt that this was discrimination. In fact, uh, when I mentioned uh, about cautions concerning disability, uh, I've had a number of individuals call me and say that you should not interfere with our civil rights. If I want to go out and commit suicide, that's my choice. And I, I have a right to, to go into space, and if the space provider is willing to, if I sign the consent form, and the space provider allows me to go into space, it happens to be I'm willing to take that chance. Don't try to control my personal choice. So we're getting into bioethics now. <laughs> into legal issues that deal with with uh, uh, you know, interference with person's choice. So we may, may not be able to control all the individuals who go into space. For example, should a person who's had a stroke go into space without knowing what would happen to them, uh, without looking at their individual profile, health profile, and to determine whether or not the, um, the travel into space would actually exacerbate their cardiovascular problem and cause a major adverse outcome. We don't know that, but if, if they sign the line in a consent form with Blue Origin or Virgin Galactic, they'll send them into space. They sent a man with Parkinson's disease recently into space, and they had no knowledge of what would happen to him. Well, if they're going alone and paying for the mission and they want to go and kill themselves or take the risk, <laughs> I'm all for it. <laughs> If there's a crew involved and other people paying big money to go and they got a stroke victim up there, then I would say no because you're going to yeah. ruin everybody else's trip and infringe on what they're paying money for if they have to yeah. tend to a stroke victim, of which they're probably not qualified to tend to. Um, yeah. But You probably know that the, the providers, their medical directors, do examine their uh uh, their uh, crew, uh, but they're not allowed to examine the passengers. Uh, okay, I wasn't, but they have to have a letter supposedly from a doctor or something, right? Ooh, yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> How many doctors know about space medicine? 
Um, I would like to say something okay. that will that addresses what you said. Uh, okay. What the caller is saying. Um, the, the, the research, the research program that, really. that we have developed is, is in three tracks. And one of the tracks, um, the first track is uh, um, to, to collect comprehensive measures because we don't know what we don't know. And so, so we would want to, in every person that flies into space, collect data on them um, on a range of different variables. And then the second track is more focused, hypothesis-driven research, similar to what you see um, space agencies like NASA collecting. And then a third track that, that um, underscores the fundamental things that one will need to run a program like this. For example, a database um, that will hold all the data of, of each commercial passenger. And what our hope is, is that once in agreement with you that this is going to be an evolution, um, the, the database would start growing and growing, and then it would be shareable because uh, people's identities wouldn't be um, easily uh, discerned. And and so this this database would be shared throughout the world, and um, and so that we would have even a larger number of participants contributing to the database. Yeah, if it's like most government databases, it'll be hacked and shared with everybody in the world. It's not too many people. Yeah. Well, we so, actually want that. <laughs> you want that. Uh, Can I just say that I want to just elaborate a little bit on, uh, in, this, in track three uh, that time Tina just described, we also have uh, civilian training as well as uh, physician training. So to answer the question about in the future, we want physicians to be aware and informed about space hazards and uh, who should and who should go into space and you know given their current status, the stabilization of a condition like if they're stabilized diabetic, um, uh, they may be able to go into space based on some of the information that the physician is, is providing. So, um, so th this comprehensive program that Tina just described covers all these elements, and we think with that we'll be able to send more people into space more safely. I'll uh, stop at that point. I'm sorry. Doug, who is still with us, is being modest. So Doug is a practicing physician in Southern California, and he is very well informed and up on and uh, versed on space medicine and human spaceflight risk and challenges, and he's being modest because he didn't share any of his background. But Doug, 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 Doug are you still with us? Yes, I am. Uh, do you have any comments on what you've been hearing? Yeah, I, I would like to say, you know, as a physician, um, if there is a patient that I identify at being at risk of committing suicide, uh, basically <laughs> obligation to so, so I don't I, just, you know, just go with the strict libertarian sort of perspective that says, well, if you want to kill yourself, you know, by taking a flight and, you know, you've, you're at risk of broking out or something like that. I mean, there's all sorts of, uh, the, the, the companies don't want that liability. There's going to be a, a, a risk to the fellow patients. Uh, there's risk to the operations. There's risk to the patients themselves. And I, I think from a reasonable standpoint, the, the development of space is going to go in a phase in which we're going to have 
progressively more sick people, you know, that, that will be going. Uh, and I think that we can reasonably guess at what conditions might there be a, a, a problem with and what conditions are probably not going to be a problem. Uh, and I, I, agree, that, I agree with that. I think you're right. I, th- I think the industry, um, I would like the industry to adopt the Hippocratic Oath. Do no harm. But uh, they, they're arguing that we will not learn about the impact of space uh, hazards on humans unless we send them up there. I said, but they, said they don't want to wait for the research to be done. They said, you don't have the adequate um, uh, environment to do the kind of research that's necessary. You're not going to find out if a person with a uh, chronic illness, uh, migraine headaches or what have you, uh, what impact space will have until you send them up there. And I says, well, then you're really telling me that your approach to, to research is a guinea pig approach. Lab you want rats. to send them up there and try it out. Right, they're the lab rats. Well, that's, that, right. that's nature of life. I mean, we, you know, mm-hmm. we have to... You do that action. in medicine, right, sometimes? Yeah, I mean, we, we have to take action, and, and yes, there's always going to be the bleeding edge of your, your inching into unknown territory, but that doesn't mean we're entering into a blind. You know, we have zero idea whatsoever might happen. I mean, we, we have private experience with, with disease, and we understand, the, to some extent, the, the environment uh, based upon our, our experience in space. And so we can say certain, you know, like blood clotting conditions might be of significant risk because we've already uh, experienced some of that on the International Space Station. So I think that we can use, uh, you know, educated a judgment, and, and we can step forward stepwise in terms of increasing risk. And there will be bad incidents that surprise us, uh, but the moment that that occurs, we will have data that we can go ahead and apply to other people yes. as we build up uh, statistics. Uh, let me go ahead and mention one more thing that I think might be uh, pretty relevant here. I, I did uh, write up a, a scientific paper and present for uh, AIAA, the organization, uh, about yeah. using um, biomedical indicators uh, for criteria for return. So what we can do is, uh, say, for example, bone mineral density. At some point, I think it's reasonable to uh, let people travel uh, who have decreased bone mineral density, uh, you know, especially private individuals. Um, but what, what we can do is we can go ahead and continue to follow their bone mineral density and when it gets below certain criteria, we would say, you know, we really think that you need to return from the moon or from low Earth orbit uh, to, to get back before you it, it goes too low. Now, this is interesting because there could be a difference in criteria for people going to orbit or to the moon compared with going to Mars, in which case you have difficulty back to Earth in a reasonable period of time. Yeah. And there could be some reasons in which... The acuity yeah. of the uh, of the condition may be such that, you know, we don't yeah. want to send people at, at risk of thrombosis uh, to Mars because, you know, un- unless we're really prepared to treat them there, including if if they do have uh, on a pulmonary embolus or, or stroke or these sorts of things. Yeah. And you also have to think that that going to Mars, you're not going to have the same medical supplies that you might need. Um, yeah. Um, I disagree. Again, I think we can do the stepwise that during the phase in which uh, governments are sending completely fit uh, 
you know, highly fit uh, astronauts during that phase, I think that we can get medical equipment and medications to Mars. We can build up significant facilities, equipment, uh, medications, as well as um, uh, the providers before we start sending people who are going to need them. So I, if we're smart about it, we can go ahead and be prepared beforehand. Mm-hmm. We're not in that in that um, position yet, though, because we don't yet understand the degradation in pharmaceuticals, for example. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Doug, anything else? No, I, th- I think I'll open up the line for anybody else who'd like to call in. Uh, thank, thank I you, wanted Doug. to say one more thank, thing. Thank you. Thank you for your Doug. comments. Those um, were great. Thank you. Yes. Well, um, one of the um, the members of the planning committee um, uh, works at Blue Abyss in the United Kingdom, and he is developing a um, a large I'll call it a large spreadsheet where he is systematically looking at the different um, potential chronic illnesses or disabilities that that exist, particularly the the more prevalent ones. And then looking at the the different design reference missions, um, or in other words, um, whether it's on orbit or a lunar surface, and mm-hmm. and trying to he's a physician, and a, a group of people are doing this, um, and mm-hmm. uh, they are attempting to do as you said to to make educated guesses about what uh, would be the the most likely to to pay attention to. I have I have another email for either of you or both of you. Cheryl in Chicago says I've I've heard you talking about physical disabilities and illnesses. It seems to me your bigger risk might be mental and it might be harder to detect, but someone who might be mentally unstable in a space environment and could get away with it on Earth unless there are triggers that make the person go ballistic could be a bigger threat to the mission as well as health, and what are you doing to detect or screen for any kind of mental abnormalities abnormalities that could show up in space flight? Uh, may I take that, uh, Tina? Of course. Yeah. Uh, I was going to mention that uh, in the first conference we held, um, where uh, uh, representatives of the space industry said, we want to make space accessible to everybody, but we uh, we have a hard stop when it comes to psychiatric disabilities because we can't afford to have someone uh, uncontrolled during a space flight or even actually uh, in a settlement, uh, a lunar settlement, for example, and uh, that it would be difficult to deal with that individual. So every effort has to be taken to make sure that uh, a person w- who might have a potential for a mental uh, episode, a mentally disordered episode, or who has uh, a known background in psychiatric disorder should be excluded. And I countered with, I said, well, you realize that given today's legal uh, perspectives, you're going to, the companies are going to be sued for discrimination. And uh, so that's one issue you've got to face. Oh, the other issue is we don't want service dogs or service animals on any of the space flights. And some people with disabilities require service animals. 
so uh, those two areas were a sort of no-no on the basis of at least the responses from the space industry. And, uh, Tina, go ahead. You, you, you're an expert in psychology, so. Um, yeah, my training is in cognitive psychology, and so the, this is a, a question that's dear to my heart, um, but not really about um, having psychiatric uh, episodes, but more of the isolation, the confinement, the constant danger, uh, restriction of sensory functions, and because your physiology is related to your behaviors, um, you know, the, uh, that will affect um, how you respond. And you're going to be living, you would be living with a very small set of individuals in a confined and isolated space and away from your family. So, so we have seen uh, different things happen, even with uh, professional astronauts, um, where they uh, will uh, experience um, psychological distress, um, have conflicts um, between themselves uh, or between the crew and uh, the ground, you know, the people on Earth. Um, and, and so part of the training that would be uh, um, developed by this research program would include how to get along with each other, uh, um, the, how to um, frame things in your mind so that the little irritations of living with somebody from another culture um, might uh, um, might do would would be dissipated. Um, that's about it. <laughs> and I, I, I should point out that in track one of uh, the uh, comprehensive human research program we are we have proposed. Uh, we include an emphasis on precision medicine, that we look at the phenotype and genotypes of each individual to determine a, the potential for uh, psychiatric uh, episodes. And um, the question then is, if you find that a person may have a potential or, or a propensity towards a a breakdown during a flight because of what Tina just mentioned, isolation, confinement, or other issues, and they become exacerbated, and the person becomes belligerent, uh, that would disrupt the, that was disrupt the, the entire uh, flight, the crew would be involved, uh, it would be very dangerous. The real question, the legal question is, can you exclude a person who might have that potential, given um, our current laws and regulations well there's people that try to open a door in an airplane in flight and um you know they get subdued obviously and they get put on no flight list now are the airlines being sued by these people because they can't fly again i don't know uh i haven't followed that up but uh it's it, uh I, I i i guess not uh because they they've they've actually committed a, a crime. Um, uh, uh, currently, I, I don't know if the, uh, the the regulations and laws that apply to commercial airlines apply also to spaceflight at the current times. There are no, I don't think there are any regulations to that effect, are there? I, I no. don't know, but I, I would think that as spaceflight gets developed, they will maybe model 
regulations on on aviation yeah. to, to keep aviation safe, in, both on the ground as, as well as from people that go berserk on the on the planes. You see home yeah. videos of it all the time these days. Yeah. Well, our commercial airlines industry has developed in such a manner that anyone can get on a plane. Um, uh, unless they show behavior before they uh, they uh, um, get aboard, but uh, I mean you could be sitting next to a person with tuberculosis uh, on an air on a plane on a flight between New York and Boston, or, or a person who is uh, just released from a mental institution. You don't you don't know, but with uh, with deep space flight, I think we have to be more cautious. Um, listeners, uh, if you would like to give us a call, our toll-free number is available for you, 866-687-7223. Plenty of time for you to call. We'd like to hear from you. Email can continue, Dr. Space, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. Is there a way for uh, interested civilians to participate with your organization, uh, uh is, are there any openings for other people to be, I don't know, observers, or I'm, I'm trying to think of the status that there might be for certain civilians or people that are, that are just interested? Are you set up for anything like that or thinking of doing something like that? Michael? <laughs> Not in my plans, but, Michael, you might know something I don't. Uh, well, we're in the process now of uh, uh, implementing the, comp the uh, uh, human research program for civilians in space flight and space, uh, space habitation. Um, and uh, uh, we're in the middle of negotiations. And if it, uh, and if it goes through, uh, as we anticipate, in 2024, we will have a uh, sort of a center in the United States that will uh, uh, begin to implement the different elements, the many elements that we have in our uh, comprehensive research program, uh, including certain areas from Track 1, Track 2, and Track 3. And uh, uh, we would like to have the population of uh, average civilians in space, and that can only be done most likely through... Uh, working with the providers, the provider organizations, Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, Axiom Space, SpaceX, and uh, uh, others. So uh, we haven't gotten to the point where we've actually identified, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a program of collaboration with the space industry because we first have to go through the negotiation of finding a location to implement the program and... Um, It'll end up as a 501c3, uh, a, a non-profit organization, and uh, there are a number of uh, potential donors who are willing to support the effort. Can you say where you're interested in locating this? Was, did this have anything to do with your conference being in Oklahoma? Well, that, that was one possible site. <clears throat> there are other sites being uh, considered. <clears throat> The attraction, the attraction to Oklahoma State University uh, came out of the fact that uh, 
James Bridenstine, the former NASA administrator, called uh, called me. Actually, called called us uh-huh. and said we'd like we'd like to have the uh, workshop, not virtual, but actually in person at Oklahoma State because J.D. Polk at NASA is a graduate of that school, and the and Congressman Frank Lucas, who's head of these science, uh, space, uh, and technology committee in the House is a graduate of OSU. Could you have it at OSU? We'll, we'll, co- we'll cover all the costs of running the conference. We said, of course. But you had the conference in Tulsa. So uh, how, how did you end up moving it to Tulsa then? Uh, because uh, uh, the, uh, the Space Institute at uh, OSU is primarily in Tulsa. Okay. And they're working closely with CAMI as well as with other groups. And uh, they, they were getting grants from FAA, you know, through the right. Centers of Excellence. And and so um, the, the uh, host of our <clears throat> meeting, uh, working closely with, with uh, Tina and, and me, was uh, Dr. Jamie Jacob. And he's in charge of their Space Institute. Aerospace Institute, and uh, that uh, that group was extremely helpful, very very helpful, and they're very interested in moving into this area. You have a caller patiently waiting on the line. Uh, good afternoon, caller. Who are you? Where are you, please? Uh, this is Marshall in Renfro, Oklahoma. So here's another and, uh, o- Oklahoma State guy who's calling on the phone. <laughs> I was going to say AOSU, but hey, we'll skip that. Uh, uh, my question is, uh, mostly what you've been talking about so far is kind of like airplane flights, like Blue Origin, you know, just going up, you know, uh, a couple of hours and coming, you know, the uh, whole process is like a couple of hours. But uh, on the other hand, you're also talking about uh, space flights where somebody goes to a job and stays uh, six months, uh, a year or two. And uh, that requires a whole lot of upfront training. And, uh, you know, if they're an employee, you kind of have to do training to see that they can do the job and so on. Uh, what's the difference in uh, viewpoint uh, in those two different situations? Tina, you want to take that? Um, well, uh, the different companies are going to have to develop their own training that's specific to what their mission is, is about. Um, however, this human research program will provide information about how to keep people physiologically and behaviorally healthy while they're in this um, austere environment. Um, um, but the training will have to be tailored for whichever mission uh, uh, that the, an individual is going on. Yeah, the the, uh, the 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 flights that you were talking about, sir, uh, Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic, they're really 11-minute flights. They're very short flights, and they're in, people are in microgravity for about what four minutes or no more than that, uh, and they're for tourists, uh, people who will pay. Two hundred fifty to four hundred thousand dollars for eleven minute flight. Uh, we're not looking at that. Uh, that that is one one thing. But say Blue Origin is now coupled with another company to develop 
an orbital platform like a mall into space. And in that mall, there will be space for research, medical research. There will be a, a hotel. They think there will be a hotel there. There will be uh, educational programs. There will be some military facilities in that, that space, all rented uh, by Blue Origin and the, the companies in which they're working with. And it will be in orbit around the Earth, and you're right. Uh, people will go up there for jobs. Like, for example, they need, they'll, they'll need policemen up there. Uh, they'll need uh, electricians, carpenters. They'll need engineers. They'll need medical researchers. And they may be up there from anywhere from two weeks to six months to a year. Uh, what our program, our research program is saying, let's do as much research as we can before we send them up there so that they're protected as much as possible. We reduce the risk for them as much as possible. Did that answer your question? I'm not sure if I did. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah, I'm just thinking the people that go up to the International Space Station, uh, some of them are taking two and three years of training to go up to do a job yeah. for six months right. and then right. come right back down and the, uh, the tourist people that are, you know, are only there for like a week and it seems like uh, you have to have a totally different uh, medical standard between the two. Right, you're absolutely correct, and, and and that kind of training will be geared to, I guess, the the amount of time the person spends in space. You're actually absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. Until next time, then. Thank you very much, Marshall. Appreciate it. But uh, listeners, you too can give us a call one eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three. Robert is in Atlanta with an email. And he says, um, is your group considering now or maybe possibly for the future looking into protocols about pregnancy and childbirth in space? Uh, Tina? Um, as, uh, of course, that um, is a medical condition, and so it's in the list of medical conditions that we would like to investigate. Um, the, the program... Um, let's make it clear that the program is a concept at this moment. Um, the idea was instead of data being collected in individuals in a piecemeal fashion, we're proposing a holistic program where all the data is merged together so that we can t learn from each person that flies up there and be able to provide countermeasures to the next person that that flies. The, the literature currently uh, is filled with uh, advice about this matter and says that a woman who is pregnant should not go into space because of the exposure to space radiation. Uh, not only solar radiation, but uh, galactic cosmic radiation. Uh, and that's a, a great concern. Uh, the uh, female astronauts in the Artemis uh, flight are, are determining uh, to save their ova before they go into flight, to freeze their ova, a portion of them, so that uh, they, because they expect some reproductive, uh, the impact of space, uh, especially radiation, on their reproductive organs. And men, too. Men get affected as well. Uh, interesting. When would this cease to be a concept and actually be a program? 
uh, this year, 2024. Is, is that a done deal, or is it dependent on certain things happening? Well, it's dependent on certain things happening, yeah. And is, are the happening things finance, or is it needing government policy, or what's needed no, to kick it off? We're, 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 uh, we're not, uh, the reason we're avoiding um, government intervention at this stage is because the space industry is weary or, or wary about uh, government in, involvement because it means, may mean regulation and constraints on their innovation and their uh, development. So um, uh, we're, we're going to be free of any kind of government uh, uh, funding initially. Uh, in the future, it could end up as an FFRDC. I'm not sure, but we've explored that. Uh, but primarily, the initial organization will be funded by private donors, private sources, private sector sources. And uh, we hope hope that maybe in the future by the industry. Um, you have a, another email. Carl is in Denver, Colorado, and he says, I'm curious as to knowing the responses you get when you talk about this program. Do you Have you talked about it in general media and to the general population audience? Uh, is, is there any feedback from that audience, or have you only been talking about it in space-specific audiences, which I assume would be much more prone to value what you're talking about than maybe a general audience? Can you comment on that? Um, Tina? We have um, <clears throat> predominantly been speaking to um, space-savvy individuals. Um, two weeks ago, I presented what occurred at the um, workshop we had three weeks ago. I went, but um, I went to the um, the United Nations Office of Outer Space Affairs uh, meeting and presented what happened at the workshop. But there again, it was people who are in the space uh, uh, realm. And the responses have been out unbelievable. When we completed the workshop, the responses were overwhelming in favor of uh, of a of engaging in human research for average civilians now, in preparation for the increase in population who will be working, living, and and uh, traveling in space. So uh, we were encouraged by the response by the stakeholders in space research, but we, we don't know uh, what the average public would say to us. We no. just got that one response from the disability community that um, we don't we should not encroach upon their right to travel if they wish to, even before the research is done. And, and that's not at all the, the function of this, uh, not the purpose. We're, we're not trying to keep people from going. We're trying to learn uh, about what will happen to people as they go into space. And, so and, and help, yeah, and help them and, and, and reduce their risk considerably. 
yeah, we'll we'll help you go up. We want to learn what happens to you. You'll you'll be lab rat number A. Is that okay? <laughs> and see what they do with that response. Um, Carl had an addendum in in his uh, note that I saved until I heard what your response was, and he said, as you might know, uh, there are lots and lots of naysayer articles and people coming on various radio and television shows talking against human activity in space on a variety of reasons. And I'm wondering if there would be support for something like this to enable humans in space when there seems to be a fairly strong trend, although I can't really measure it, of we shouldn't be sending people into space and it's a misallocation of resources and whatever else you want to throw into their pot. Do you have any comments on this? I'm sure you're aware of the many naysayer articles that appear, especially after a particular human spaceflight event. Uh, uh, Tina, you want to go? I have some comments about that. <laughs> well, I, am, I have read this, um, but if you look at, back in history, there are similar naysayers to uh, commercial airlines. Um, you know, it, so I, I don't know. You can't you can't stop progress. Uh, right. Companies can make money. Um, the the Earth will benefit from the research that's done um, mm-hmm. in space. And um, you know, uh, but I I don't see it. I don't see the naysayers as having enough power. Michael, do you want to add to that? Yes. Uh, yes. I've written a number of articles urging the space industry to be more cautious about sending people who might have chronic uh, health problems and and disabilities into space until we have better information about uh, the effects of, of space hazards, primarily microgravity and space uh, radiation. Even on these... Uh, short, you know, uh, tourist flights. Uh, uh, but uh, to tell you the truth, I, I really believe that uh, we're going to continue to explore, whether we like it or not. It's a new frontier, and uh, it's it's going to happen, and humans are going to keep pushing forward, uh, whether we like it or not. It's a new industry, and I foresee it as a uh, rapidly developing one, and uh, we just want to make sure that if humans go into space, they go in there with the least, the fewest number of risks, and that's what we're we're interested in, in accomplishing. Uh, again, listeners, there's still time. If you would like to call us, eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three. You can also send in email at drspace at thespaceshow dot com. Uh, do you? hear directly from uh, people like Bezos or Musk or just through their corporations. Uh, I, I'm wondering if any of the big giants uh, actually are in touch with you or, or people in your organization. Uh, I'm, I'm curious as if you're reaching the top echelon. Yes, we have had, um, at the workshop, we had representatives um, attend from the major uh, space um, partners. Yeah. Blue Origin, especially. 
and uh, uh, you know, initially, the uh, this whole effort began with the interest of the Commercial Space Flight Federation, which represents you know the all of the major players, and uh, we were working closely with SpaceX and uh, and with uh, Axiom Space, uh, Virgin Galactic, uh, Blue Or, uh, Red Wire Space, the Sierra Space, all the major providers of passengers into space, and uh, we uh, worked very closely with them. And then at some point in time, uh, I think SpaceX and a few others said. Well, we like to go it alone. We don't, you know, we we don't want to be part of a major collaborative effort at this stage, and we'll do our own research. But I said, well, you won't be able. You're not going to share the research because everything you do is proprietary, and though we want to share the research, if you find something that is really a discovery and a breakthrough, should we all benefit from that? And at this stage in the game, because the commercial agencies are competitive. And looking at the bottom dollar, um, they decided that they they may not want to do that at the current time. We hope that eventually they will cooperate and they will work with us in terms of sharing information for the benefit of the public as well as for their own industry. But not for now, huh? Well, at current time, Sierra Space is working with us. And I said, uh, Blue Origin reactivated their interest and came to our conference, as well as uh, was someone from Virgin Galactic, and I think there was uh, someone from Axiom, two people from Axiom Space. Yeah. Um, I have a note about Axiom Space. Uh, Bob is up in Boston, and he says, just a note that you're talking about the new frontier, and we're going to keep pushing out. Axiom Space is returning with a breast cancer tissue experiment that uh, operates differently in microgravity and may be a trigger to turning on and off cancer cells. It's due to go into some kind of advanced testing phase toward the end of this year, and it was flown in space. Yep. Uh, When I was at NIH, um, Lucy Lowe, Dr. Lowe, who now is assistant to the uh, research director at Axiom. She was working at NIH. I introduced her to the field of space research. And uh, on the behalf of her institute, uh, she started doing tissue research and was, was sending up cancer cells at the, to, up to, to ISS to see what radiation, space radiation or microgravity does to it. And she found out that uh, uh, cancer cells do not cluster in space. And, you know, the cancer cells uh, cluster on Earth and actually go after healthy cells and kill it. So they, they not, only, not only cannot cluster, their DNA gets changed. And therefore, it opened a whole new possibility of finding a cure for cancer uh, because of the exposure to microgravity and, and radiation in space. So uh, that started initially at NIH through that NIH-NASA group and moved to Axiom Space. Lucy Loeb took that project over to Axiom Space. What? Tina, did you want to say something? Um, I, no, but, but uh, it would be interesting in another um, uh, show to talk about 
the benefits that we've seen um, from space research at, on on what we need on Earth. I think that would be, make a very interesting show. So I do that a lot, but not uh-huh. enough, but not enough. And I'm not going to bore listeners because they've heard the story 63 million times. But I have a cystic fibrosis kid, and maybe 15, 20 years ago, there, uh, Doctor DeLuca. Uh, in uh, in uh, uh, one of the universities, I forget which one, in, in I think it was Alabama or Georgia, flew um, CF cells into space on the shuttle, and that opened up a whole new targeted genetic research mm-hmm. um, that has changed the outcome of CF today for kids, and they live normal lives now. And um, I've done shows with researchers from Cedar sinai they're sending stem cells up uh, to repair cardiac problems. And uh, they just recently sent another uh, group of uh, stem cells up for research. Uh, and they go up on SpaceX or wherever they can get a commercial ride. And they say they're looking forward to the advent of commercial space stations because there will be a lot more flight opportunities for their research if this industry became truly commercial rather than having to work through the ISS in a national lab. so yeah. uh, And I'm sure there are opportunities going on that I'm not aware of. So um, I, I would agree I would do a benefit show. I don't know that I have the right contacts for that. Tina, if, if you know how to put it together and who to talk to, I'd be glad to do it. I can give you some names to start out. Yeah. Okay. And the website, on NASA's website, has a list of their contributions from space research that have improved our lives here on Earth, the quality of life here on Earth. I mean, the, the uh, some of the, the the materials now used in wheelchairs have been as, as a result of NASA research. And so, I I think that NASA um, has should be congratulated for trying to uh, utilize space for the benefit of terrestrials, and they have. As, as well as the upcoming commercial partners, because they'll be doing research, too. Yeah, yep. Uh, we got a note from our caller a little while ago, Dr. Doug, I, uh, and he's in Southern California. I imagine that this is where expert, expert medical panels can come in to give regulators recommendations as to what medical conditions should be allowable for the different settings in space and at what different levels of space development. It would be a balance between reducing risk and allowing us as much liberty as possible. And while Doug is making absolutely 100% common sense, I suspect that if any of the people from the disability communities are listening and uh, they want to post on our blog, Doug might not get some favorable postings because mm-hmm. they, they want no limits. And, and honestly, I don't blame them. But um, And the commercial, uh, uh, the commercial uh, industry doesn't want limits either. That's right. You know, I've worked with the disability community for many years, especially looking at the health needs. And uh, they uh, have uh, been very offended by the fact that People talk to them as if they are 
peons. Uh, they, they, they feel that the medical profession has considered them an aside. And so that's what accounts for the fact that now they're, uh, they believe under civil rights, they should be, they should allow, they should be allowed to make their own decisions. Um, but I think the people I work with are very reasonable, and if we said to them, well, don't you want an informed decision? I mean, if you're a person who does not have a depression and wants to commit suicide and really loves life, wouldn't you want to continue a healthy life and, uh, and postpone this particular flight until we have the research necessary to provide you with information about reducing your risk in flight? And I think most of them would agree with that. Well, <clears throat> well I can tell you my CF son is, in, is 40. And uh, when he was in grade school and uh, middle school and in science and other classes, they were teaching that the life expectancy of CF kids was seven and girls was a little bit different. Uh, my wife and I tried to get literature into the schools to update their teaching. They would not take it. Uh, we tried to get the teachers to not teach this crap, especially since they had uh, actually two CF students yeah. in the class mm -hmm. did not make any difference, and then the, all the classmates think that you're you know that the kid is going to die soon, and I mean mm -hmm. it was <clears throat> that's my experience with the disability yeah. community, and I understand why they're pissed off, and yeah, and, and they deserve because to be. of what you just said. And the, and the educational system was part of it. They, the teachers refused to be flexible. Uh, it was, we even had the CF Foundation come in with literature to give them new state of the art from back then, genetic literature, and they would not yeah. use it in the class. Well, I have always been taught that we do not know the upper limits of human ability, and therefore I never made any judgments when I was doing clinical work with individuals with disabilities. I never made an assumption that this person is limited. I didn't know, I had no concept at that time. Therefore, I never encroached upon that particular issue. I felt that they had a right to make their judgments and to realize the highest degree of accomplishment. And uh, most people should be taught that. Now, by the way, the, the, the medical profession today is pretty well informed about uh, the way they deal with individuals with uh, disabilities. I, I think I think the in the past it has been a real problem. But and I'm, we're getting off to another topic here. But during the COVID crisis, when I I was working with HHS, I urged them uh, to make sure that uh, when the decision about uh, limited uh, medication is available that the hospitals do not give the, the uh, medication through bias to a, a person without a disability when there are two people there, a person with a disability and without, and ignore the person with disability because many years ago, uh, a person I worked with who had post-polio was in a chair said to me, uh, we're going to be discriminated against when it comes to limited health care. And uh, because we, we they, they consider our lives le of lesser value than the lives of others, and I says, well, we're going to make sure that that, is, that does not happen. Well, 
I know when he was growing up, he was treated, my son at UCSF, and I used to ask him if he'd ever be able to go into space or ever be able to scuba dive. And I'm no, 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 he can't do that. He has fluid and mucus in his lungs. No, 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 he'll never do that. So with the new drugs, he doesn't do any of his chest treatments anymore. He doesn't do the breathing of the drugs anymore. I mean, all of that is gone. And, I yeah. mean, he doesn't have any desire to, to go learn to scuba dive or to, or to go into space. But, you know, within 20, 25 years, the whole uh, world changed for these kids. And I would imagine uh, a kid, well, an, a young adult, uh, who has been transformed by these drugs might very well be able to scuba dive and, and, to, and to go into space uh, as long as those drugs work in microgravity. And that's, right. and that's a big issue because, you, you, you know, you don't want to send someone up with a drug that isn't going to work and then you've got a double whammy going on. So Exactly. Um, That's been our concern. You've, we've got to find out if the drugs work in microgravity and, and do they work the same way. Yeah. And as Tina said earlier, uh, there is a, a tendency for drugs to actually lose their, their effectiveness. Uh, they, they degrade in, t- uh, in space rapidly. So. Yeah, I, I, I've heard that, and uh, yeah. so this this is a, a wide open research field. And uh, boy, you, which drugs do you start doing it with? I, I guess the the most common ones that that people need. But uh, this is a big issue. And if you're going to take people into space that are drug dependent, uh, then uh, you, you need to make sure those drugs work. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're pretty much at the the 90 minute point. Do either of you have any additional remarks? Have we omitted something you wanted to share and tell us? This would be a good time to bring it up, or any concluding comments. Uh, uh, Tina, you want to go first? Um, well, uh, the one question by the individual that said, you know, have we presented this to the to the civilian population? I guess this is the introduction of that. And uh, and I would be interested to know whatever people would like to give as feedback. They can write me at my email. Okay. Well, they can post. Well, you've, you've got an 11th hour blog uh, uh, call. What did I tell you about people who always call at the very last minute before we started the show? Uh, <laughs> good afternoon, caller. Welcome to the show today. Who are you? Where are you, please? Hi, Tony Kirk calling from Pasadena. Hi, Tony. How are you today? Pretty good. Um, I, I just wanted to let you know, some of your discussion reminded me that I just read an article about an incident on the space shuttle in uh, 1995. And maybe you've already discussed this, so stop me if, if you've already mentioned it. But there was a mission specialist whose experiment didn't work, and he made some comment. I mean, it didn't work initially. I think it got working the second day, but he was so... Uh, depressed actually because it didn't work immediately that he made some comment to Mission Control about not maybe not coming back, and it alarmed it alarmed people so much that from then on the space shuttle actually had a lock a padlock on the uh, main hatch uh, to keep 
you know, people from <laughs> opening the hatch in flight because they thought that would probably be the most likely way of uh, committing suicide on, on a flight. There have been yeah, so. um, several incidences where where uh, people who have flown get aggravated or or you know interpersonal conflicts and yeah it's 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 not unheard of but it's also not common. Yeah, but but apparently it did lead to a permanent change and not not mentioned publicly at the time, but uh, I think it showed up in video, so people started having questions about it because he obviously knew the padlock on the on the uh, Randall, and uh, I guess enough people have kind of sleuthed through uh, the flight logs and stuff to kind of figure out what happened. <laughs> Tony, if you, uh, if you have the article, follow up on that. Uh, when I was working at NASA, I. Uh, we were talking about the trip after Mars uh, and uh, the uh, uh, to Europa, you know, Moon of Jupiter, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a four-year trip. And I said, uh, how will you uh, handle uh, the maintenance of the ship while people are asleep? They I said, uh, did you see uh, 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 Space Odyssey 2000? Hal took over the, uh, the computer, took over the slick ship. <laughs> they said, "Well, we're not going to put computers on that control us. We're going to control the computers." <laughs> and that was how many months ago? <laughs> well, no, that was about two years ago when I was at NASA. I was discussing this, and they they said we were going to make sure that the the ship is not operated by computers alone. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just kidding because it's so obvious now how uh, AI is affecting uh, media and right, stuff. Right, I wouldn't trust it on long trips, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Tony, yeah. if you have that article and you can post it on the on the blog for people to see it, that'd be great. Sure, I'll try to find it. It was something I ran across on the X, but if uh, in the meantime, though, if you just Google Depression Space Shuttle, Cat's lock, you will come up with a number of articles uh, yeah. on that specific uh, title. So. All right. Uh, thanks, Tony, for your call. We appreciate it. You're Thank sure you. welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, go back to summaries. Tina, do you have something else you want to add? Uh, no. Thank you for having us. Michael, do you have any concluding comments? Yes, I think you su- the suggestion that uh, has been made about Getting this information out to the public at large would be magnificent. It would be wonderful if we got public support and public interest in this area because they're the ones that are going to be affected by the future space travel. So that, that's, we, we, I learned something from this, this meeting. Thank you so very much for the opportunity. Well, if one of you can condense this down, to between 10 and 20 minutes. I, I co-host a program called Hotel Mars with John Batchelor, who you may be familiar with if you're on the East Coast, and he's part of the CBS network. So he does pre-recorded programs with just John and myself talking to the guests, but it goes out globally, and their audience is not a space audience. It's, it's a highly informed audience, but it's more general. But it's only a 10 to maybe 20-minute segment at the most. So we've been talking for, if, if we get rid of the introduction to the show, 
we we've been talking sixty minutes. So mm-hmm. you'd have to one of you would have to be able to consolidate what we're doing now down into ten to twenty minutes. If if you could figure out a way to do that, because we've covered a lot of topics. Yeah, I'll, I'll uh, cons- and Tina and I will consult on that, and I think we've. I know Tina. I'd like to take advantage of that. Well, if you want to do it, you can do a a ten minute pre recorded podcast with only John and me asking questions. Then um, I'll ask John if he will do a, a Hotel Mars program on this subject. But uh, again, you don't get as much time, and you don't have any listener participation. So it's just the, the two of me, two of us, John and myself, and the, and mm-hmm. the one guest. And as I said, you, it's, he tells us if it's going to be one or two segments. And, um, the last question he always likes to ask, if you had an unlimited budget for your project, what could you do with it or what would you do with it? So, uh, mm-hmm. and then he gives you ample time to respond to that. But again, mm-hmm. it's a, a 10 to 20 minute segment. So, if you want to consolidate it down, send me a note, and I'll propose it to John and see if he'll go for it. Well, Tina and I will talk about that. Okay. And and thank you very much for this opportunity. <laughs> and he does it via Zoom, but audio only. He doesn't care about the video. Okay. So you can you can cut off your camera and be in your pajamas for all that matter. So. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, let me know, uh, and I'll be glad glad to propose it. And I, I hope that uh, we can talk to you again and, and see how you're progressing and hope this does take shape by the end of 2024 and we can talk about it when it's uh, in play rather than just a concept. So I'm looking forward to that. Thank you. Thank you both. And I don't know if Angie's listening or if she'll listen on, on archives. Angie Buckley, uh, who's a great friend of the space show, I want to thank her for introducing the two of you to me and to making this opportunity happen. So, Angie, if you hear us, thank you very much. And uh, I hope to talk to you both soon. So thank you again very much for being here. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. Thank you. And uh, listeners, uh, that's it for today. Um, again, uh, AJ, uh, back Tuesday with his Cosmos Club uh, talk on Thorium, which was a huge hit from what I understand and uh, also on returning to the moon. And uh, all the newsletters are out and ready to go. It's a full week on the space show. So everybody have a great rest of the weekend. Uh, Keep it safe. Keep it healthy. As always, keep looking up. Our guests are off the phone, but we want to thank Tina, Michael, uh, and, of course, the space show for hosting this. By the way, they're both with the Aerospace Corporation. I did not mention that on air, but I'm mentioning that now. As I said uh, and Angie, who referred them, of course, is, is a part of the Aerospace Corporation as well. So everybody have a great rest of the weekend. Lots of cool things to see in the night sky, so go out and look up for a change. And uh, everybody come back Tuesday for the next live space show program. Once again, thank you very much for being with us today.